welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a podcast about reptiles and amphibians, where the language is strong and the jargon is stronger. I am one of your three co-hosts, Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Ethan Kosak. Uh, I am a cartoonist and uh, reptile and amphibian hobbyist. And Gabriel Ugetto. And I'm Gabriel Lugetto, and I'm a paleo artist and scientific illustrator, and I used to work in hepatology, but not anymore. <laughs> you got it that time. Yeah, Good today, one. today I did it perfectly. Yay. <laughs> so, um, as you might be able to tell, dear listeners, I'm a little bit ill, so my voice is going to be a bit weird on this one. Bear with. Um, we're going we're gonna to get right to it. This is an episode that we have compiled in the last, let's say, half an hour. And um, it, as such, you may notice that it's a little bit lower than our well, typical standards. But let's explain why we did that. We're also going to see Mark is going to Madagascar tomorrow, somehow. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so I've been sick. I'm going to Madagascar. And... Uh, and, and yeah, and everybody else has been just also very stressed and very busy. So yes. we didn't even we weren't even planning to record an episode. To be fair, and yet yes. here we sit. It just kind of the planets aligned. On a, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This was a last minute decision because we didn't want to leave you without an episode in April. So. Exactly. It's all for you. So exactly. Shut up and take it. Yeah. It's either this crap episode or no episode. <laughs> exactly. You're welcome. Um, so we're, we're going to get right to it. There's nothing to follow up on on the last episode because we don't listen to you. Um, no. <laughs> we do. Nobody's we're sending perfect. us nice messages. Mistakes, yeah. Yep, no mistakes. It would Another be, perfect it would one be really can. nice. Yeah. I mean, it's true. We are mostly flawless. But sometimes we do make mistakes, and it would be great if you would, if you would contact about... the. Uh, the if you would contact us about them and, uh, and send us an email, squamitspod at gmail.com, or just to say hi. It's just like, you know, I just opened up the email here on my computer, and you know what the five emails I have in our inbox are? Uh, WordPress auto-update, WordPress security <laughs> alert, WordPress Stitcher content store, iTunes store, come on. Guys, send us nice emails. Send us requests of things that you would like us to talk about. We will uh, take them under advisement. But not a Knowles. May even we're, we're done with the Knowles. Do them. Yeah, we're, we're done with the Knowles for now. <laughs> <coughs> I just did it to thank you for Thank you for saying it correctly. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get, let's get on with it. Let's talk about works in progress. And I have some progress to report. Um, specifically, very, very small progress. <laughs> so as you might have seen all over the internet, uh, one of my papers came out, which was chapter eight in my thesis. And it's about these tiny frogs from Madagascar. Um, and we gave them a new genus name. So if you haven't heard it, the genus, we called the genus Mini, and then we named the three species in the new genus, Mini Mum, Mini Skule, and Mini Achur, because 
because you I could. really wanted because you could <laughs> and because I could yeah I mean you rarely get the opportunity to like capitalize on something like that where you can name the genus and the first new species because usually it's like oh there's already a species described we're just making a new genus uh, but this so, time but, it was completely so the new. response was yeah mostly good right i saw like one person complaining yeah, about it yeah one but, person was like oh this is taxonomic vandalism yeah. and i was like fuck off <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, this is not taxonomic vandalism. These are valid species. We're giving them good names. And look at the response. I mean, so the article was featured on I Fucking Love Science, which you don't appreciate how powerful that stupid platform is until they make an article about you. And it gets shared on Facebook more than 30,000 times in yeah. 24 hours. Yeah, that's 30,000 times. That's potentially millions of people seeing that one article. And, and let me ask which you this. If you had named it something mind blowing, something boring, yeah, would that have happened? No. I mean, look at the other two species that were named in the paper. We named two more species in that paper. So it was five new species from three different genera. And many, of course, got all of the attention. We also named Rhombophrin proportionalis. And Anodontyla eximia, very boring, normal names. Yeah. And everyone ignored those completely. <laughs> yeah. And actually, yeah. I had reached out um, to uh, a lady called Michelle Donahue, who had done a piece on my gecko leapers paper back in 2017. Um, and I said, hey, would you be interested in covering this? And she said, I'm going to forward this to the people at National Geographic and see if they take the bait. And, uh, and what she told me was that they had only accepted it because the names, because the names were funny, you know, yeah. because everything else about it is just, look, it's more tiny frogs. Right. Um, right. And right. actually it's... there have been quite a number of recent papers uh, where, where tiny frogs have been described. And uh, quite rightly, it's true that like, because of that influence, especially the, the, the tiny frogs from India, um, there was this whole the whole thing with all of them on these coins that people outside of India have never seen in their lives, so they have no idea how big the frog really is, which I thought was hilarious. Yes, I, I um, hate that. <laughs> that. That made me also a little bit confused. Um, but anyway, it's so, very colonial, you know. It's very there's a lot of colonialism in that of putting them on well, a, on no, a, I mean on a the, coin the, the coin is seen. a standard. You'd, you'd usually put a coin like put it on the. You'd usually put it on a dime or a penny or a quarter or whatever. Um, well, yeah, but isn't that like a like like, like, a, like th that's that would really be very colonial. To, but that would be very unfair to the persons that lived. If the frog is from India and have never seen a dime. Yeah, yeah no, but it's... they put it on a rupee coin. Oh, okay. They put it on a local coin. It's just that nobody has any idea how big that coin is. <laughs> oh, then forget so. what I said. I'm very happy with that. Yeah. Deal with it if you haven't if you haven't seen the coin. Go research it. That's sort of a reverse yeah. uh, of that. It's yeah. a reverse it is, colonialism. It, it's a reverse <laughs> situation. It just made me very confused because it's not a good frame of reference if you have no idea how big the coin is. You then need to put the coin next to other coins from around the world that people. No, might be go more research the coin. With. I, I mean, if, if I'm up for it. He's right. I mean, if it's a standard coin, you could look up what the diameter actually yeah. is. Yeah. You know. I mean, yeah. the other Google thing that got our, our that paper a lot of attention was using a banana for scale. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I hang about on imager. I'm I'm an imagerian, and uh, and yeah, we the banana for scale got got 
a lot of uh, appreciation, which I enjoyed but, but, a lot. So. But wait, let's go back a little bit to the mini uh, name. Yeah. Which is, it's really good, and I really love what you did with the names. However, I'm going to say that it's dangerous if an article only gets featured because the name, which I understand, but then you're going to have a lot of people naming stuff. I mean, we talked about this before, how right. crazy names can get. And then, you know, I, I, it's a, it's a uh, slippery slope. Saw, yeah, on Twitter, someone, someone sent me an, uh, a thing that had been named Wakey Wakey. And I thought it was a great Jenna's name. <laughs> wakey, wakey, geez. I mean, yeah, no, it, this can be this can be taken to a ridiculous extreme. And, I mean, you just have to look at the ones that already exist. So, in the Comoros, um, there's a snake that's called Lycodryas Coca-Cola. Um, <laughs> I didn't know it's about not that. Named, it's not named after the company. Coca-Cola means living in coconut palms. Literally, in Latin, coco, meaning coconut, and cola is the Latin suffix for living in, inhabiting. So it's an informative name that is also, by chance, a pun. And uh, it was erected by a colleague of mine. I thought it was... It was quite fun, and they don't mention in the paper at all the similarity to well, the, that's, to the we, brand we name. Well, that's you want to play that totally straight. I mean, you know, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So well, that's a little bit pass. more ingenious, you know. That, I don't mind that so much because it's a little bit more ingenious, and I, I it's yeah. like what you did with Midi. It has a. Re- but my fear <coughs> is that we're gonna get like some crazy stuff just to be featured somewhere, and um, someone's that, web, yeah. someone's website as the species name, or you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, there's always a risk of that. At least this time, you know, we, we did it in a really serious way. I wrote very explicitly in the etymologies that the name is designed to be a pun because, yeah. because we had to go with this, this weird rule in the IUCN. Uh, I, I always, in the last few days, I've been confusing IUCN and ICZN repeatedly. <laughs> but but in, in, the, um, in the code... We'll just call it the code. There are rules for how you can create a name. As long as it's pronounceable, it can be whatever combination of, uh, of vowels and consonants that you prefer. And so we use that rule in order to create these names so that we can um, make the pun. But some people have highlighted the risk, which is that if they were later to be transferred to a different genus, then it makes then no sense. Yeah. the pun loses all of its value. What's good is this, like the, the, genetic, the, the generic uniqueness of this clade has already been recognized for 11 years. So mm-hmm. it's robust to all of the data that's been thrown at it in that time, which is a huge amount of data. And, uh, and yeah, so the situation with that name is actually quite stable, I think. We hope. The other <laughs> amazing thing that came out of this paper, which is... I don't want to. I don't want to overplay it. But for me, it's a huge um, victory, or and a very exciting thing, is that. Uh, well, two things. First of all, um, Anodontyla eximia, which is this tiny species of Anodontyla, um, was the eight thousandth species added to the American Museum of Natural History's amphibian species of the world database, which is really cool. Um, Unfortunately, we got to the 7,999th species in Amphibia Web, so we weren't 8,000, 8,000. Um, that honor went to uh, a group of researchers who described a frog from Southeast Asia. 
<coughs> which, I mean, it's a beautiful frog, so congratulations to them. I wrote a tweet about it. Um, but the other thing is, so these tiny frogs are related to the genus, uh, so they're, they're, they're microhylid frogs, they're narrow-mouthed frogs, and they are found, um, or, or they belong to the subfamily Cophylinae, which is the subfamily that I sort of specialize on. And as I mentioned in previous episodes, without naming names or anything, um, we've had a conflict about some of these, these uh, species, and specifically the genus-level taxonomy that led to a bit of a, a paper war back and forth um, with, with some uh, people. And the result of that conflict had been that the genus Stumphia, which in 2017 we described 26 new species from that genus on the AMNH database was not recognized. They would been synonymized with rhombophrene. So although we, the researchers that actually work on the frog, recognize them as separate, the database, and therefore the IUCN database as well, so the conservation database, iNaturalist, everything that was drawing from the AMNH, they were using uh, rom, they were using Stumphia as a synonym of rhombophrine, which was a giant pain in the ass. And now, finally, it has been it has been changed back to the to the let's call it the correct <laughs> taxonomy. <coughs> what we what we subjectively view as the correct taxonomy, um, and yeah, so those species are now uh, back into the genera that we prefer for them in the AMNH database, which is a, a big win for us. Really exciting. That's good. Congratulations. And I don't... Um, so, additionally to that, I have two more bits of news. I don't know if I mentioned in the last episode about Brachesia teddy. Did I mention that? You, I, you, I know about it, and we talk about it, but I don't think we mentioned it. Uh, I don't think we mentioned it in the last episode. Maybe we mentioned it. We talked about it, but I don't know yeah. if we were yeah. like recording. Potentially. It might have been before or after. I think it, it came out just a few days after the other thing. Anyway, Brachesia Teddy was published. Maybe I mentioned that in the last episode. It's a very small chameleon. It's very cute. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's about twice the length of Mini Mum. And uh, <laughs> so all these tiny, tiny animals that I'm working on at the moment. Um, and for someone who hates looking through microscopes, that was a big thing. Uh, the, other, the other big piece of news for me is that I have accepted a postdoc position. And um, so in November time, I will be moving to Constance to, uh, to start a postdoc there. So that's going to be an interesting thing. And uh, I'm not entirely certain yet what I'll be working on, but we'll get there. <laughs> possibly, possibly axolotls, possibly cichlids. Axolotls. So we'll see. Axolotls. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and of course, tomorrow at uh, at fifteen hundred hours, I will be getting on a train to Austria to get on a plane to Addis Ababa. To get on another plane to Nozi Bay in Madagascar for three weeks of what I feel are probably well-earned holiday. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be um, exciting. It's a new place for me. I've never been there. And lots of exciting things that we'll be finding. Take lots, yeah. of, take lots of pictures. 
We expect I, that report when you come back. For sure. I mean, um, oh, oh, that's another piece of news. Uh, the latest episode of the Chameleon Breeder podcast is actually a like a diary entry thing from my expedition to Madagascar in 2017. So it's me talking through my experience in the field and uh, uh, sounding very optimistic toward the beginning of the trip <laughs> with, with beautiful foreshadowing as to how it's all going to go wrong. <laughs> so um, go give that a listen. You can also find it in podcast apps. And if you're interested in Keeping Chameleons, that is the single best podcast um, to listen to. It's amazing. It has amazing information. Bill is really patient and, um, and super informative. So enjoy that. All right, that's me. Uh, that, that was like 15 minutes of updates on my life. Gabriel, what's going on in your life? <coughs> so um, I've been uh, working on this do, in the same long project that I cannot talk about yet. <laughs> um, it's a, I have a lot of things cool going story. on. A, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, projects right now under embargo, so I cannot talk uh, about them yet. I did finish uh, an illustration that I was commissioned to do uh, of a Japanese giant salamander, Andreas Japonicus. That was cool. It took longer than I expected, but it was cool. I mean, it was a... Uh, their texture is insane, so it took me a while to do that. So, yeah, I did that. Um, I'm hoping to get commissioned to another cool project that I cannot really talk about also, because I already si signed the non-disclosure agreement. And um, and I wanted to mention that um, today I and this is to in reference to the episode that we had with James Trout when we talked about exotics in South Florida, and he said that with your very it, kind disagreement. Yes, which I am going to disagree <laughs> with again. Uh, and he said that you know exotics can expand to natural areas and blah blah blah. Emphasis on the blah, blah, blah. No, I'm, I'm lying. I'm lying. That's a, that's a joke. Uh, he's an awesome person. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so today, so today I wake, woke up very early because I wanted to go to this natural park in Broward uh, County, which is where for Lauderdale is. Um, and because there were two very rare birds that have been sighted there. Um, vagrants. They are not supposed to be here, but they they being spotted here and um so i went there to check it and it's 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 a really cool place because it's the only uh one of the last few remnants of actual coastal hammocks which we explain in few uh past episodes what a hammock is um and also the few places where there are actual beach uh vegetation left in South Florida, because every other thing has hotels and, and palm trees and stuff. So um, uh -huh. it was cool because you get to see native species. And I, I found a really nice uh, uh, six-line race runner, which is a teed lizard. I posted some pictures on Twitter, and I also did on my Instagram story. So if you want to see it, you can go check them, check them there. Um, but my, the thing, what I'm saying is this, because... It, when you are inside the park, in all the natural places, you cannot find any uh, exotics. They 
they they stay very close to the boardwalks. <clears throat> like there were some curly tail lizards in the boardwalk on some anolis, but once you stay away from there and you go like in trails and stuff, you don't see any of them again. And the iguanas were all the way back at the nature center in the building. So they don't they cannot exploit areas that are not super disturbed or most of them can't. So I just wanted to make that point because I, I, it just bothers me that so many people are um, using exotics as the culprits of why native animals are disappearing. And the reason is not them, it's not the exotics, mm. it's the habitat loss. It's that's us. Really yeah. What, yeah, it's us. It's, yeah. That's really what's the problem is that the, the habitat that we're losing is the one that all these animals cannot, you know, the six line race runners cannot expand to uh, <clears throat> manicure parks like iguanas and anolis do. You know, they don't, they cannot survive in those environments. So the few pockets where, you know, how long has it been since I've seen a, a six line race runner? A long time because you don't see them anywhere in Miami because um, all the places are disturbed. So, uh, you know, it's important. I, I'm sure that there's some, like I said before, like pythons and stuff like that can and do expand to natural areas. But most of the exotics, particularly lizards, do not. And they tend to stay, they tend to stay on heavily disturbed areas, parks and stuff, not in natural mm. places. So, Although I do think it, it is quite strongly dependent on which species you're talking about. Oh, for sure. There are, yeah. There, there are some in, invasive in, exotics that will penetrate everywhere. Yeah, if I, I, given I, the chance. And I'm just talking particularly with South Florida. I, I, I know, for example, yeah. okay. brown, brown anolis, brown anolis, anolis are great. Do penetrate everywhere, and they have been here since you know, almost last century. So, uh, almost for a hundred years already. So, uh, those are different, but. When you're talking about stuff like iguanas and stuff, uh, they, they have a they can only survive in certain areas. And and my point with this is that uh, what I said earlier, I don't. It's it's hard for me to hear people saying that the reason why native species are disappearing are because of exotics when that's not really the case. It's the mm. biggest problem is habitat loss. <clears throat> the fact that we're not preserving these habitats for them and they cannot survive in human, you know, in. in well, I mean, I mean, I mean, technically, humans are are an exotic species. It's true. <laughs> That's true. So yeah, but 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 you know, if you take uh, us primate exotics, um, <laughs> you know, it's it's annoying to me when people say like, oh, we have to, because you hear it because it's it's yeah. promoted on TV yeah. and stuff yeah. like, oh, we have to get rid of iguanas because they are destroying it. No, that's not what's happening. So you you need to get informed. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Ethan, what about you? What 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 you've been up to? Uh, well, there's the usual illustration stuff, but I did the uh, Rochester uh, Rexpo reptile show uh, two weeks ago, and uh, and and sold a lot of uh, newts and salamanders, and got to see a lot of cool cool stuff. I was telling you guys before we started recording, I saw some some. There's always there's always importers there with crazy stuff. There's always uh, which I don't, which I avoid. But there's always interesting to see that there was a gecko lepsis there. Uh, a gecko lepsis. Yeah, gecko lepsis. Yeah. Uh, you should have bought it. <laughs> They're amazing. 
Yeah. They're I, great animals. I didn't buy it, but uh, I wanted to. It was really cool. It was not captive bred, right? No, it was not. Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. They can be yeah. if you, I mean. I mean, you, you got to start somewhere, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did come home hmm. with, a, uh, with a gecko vitatus, the white lion gecko, which is really cool. Captive bred. Very friendly, which is weird because I've ne- only ever seen wild caught ones that are super fast. Uh, yeah. So. And they usually in in cages uh, when they're wild caught ones they they look so beat up. Yeah, yeah. Even worse the, than tokes. I know. Captures. I know tokes. Yeah. Always look beat up. Um, but they're. I mean, they're such a slender gecko anyway. That it's hard to tell if they're actually you know. Emaciated, yeah, once they lose they their are. tails, they look like shit, too. Yeah. 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 No, so this yeah. one's awesome, and I got it for an amazing price. And uh, The breeder just happened to be at the booth next to me, and and uh, I kind of ended up with that. And I ended up coming home with a, uh, a, a Lepidodactylus lugubris, the morning gecko. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the neat thing about those, I don't know if you guys know, uh, listeners, but... They are an, uh, basically all female parthenogenic species, so they sort of self—I guess it's self-cloning, right? They're they're yeah yeah. <laughs> so. They are um, the last time I the last time I read about them, they are currently believed to be a species complex. So yeah, yeah. there's a that there's a taxonomy of of, of well, a- asexual species are a real problem for a lot of species compl- uh, species concepts. Yeah. So, <clears throat> by, because by definition they have no admixture, no lineage has yeah. mixture. But what's uh, funny is every that, individual is a species. Right. What's so funny you really is, have to is like the ho- in the hobbyist world, the the Hawaiian ones are a different. They're considered a different color morph. So people will pay mm-hmm. more for the morning geckos from Hawaii. Well, I, I read a paper about them, and I do know that there are some populations. That are uh, significant dis- difference, different significantly. Yeah. Yeah, so they they are. Um, I I don't remember exactly where they're from, but they, I think Hawaii is one of those that are um, considered like they're lighter. They're, yeah, they're like a, they're they're a more high contrast color, I think. But anyway, mm-hmm. this is just a standard morning gecko. <laughs> so. Yeah. Those are those, those are one of those geckos that are basically everywhere now. I yeah. mean, uh, well, I uh, mean, morning geckos like, have expanded throughout the world. Yeah, they're in a lot it, of places. They're in South America. They are in here. They are uh, it, to the point where it's like it's it's kind of unclear where they actually originate from, right? They're just everywhere. Yeah, but I think in their no, case, with, um, they're from Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, yeah. Really? Yeah. No, yeah. 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 But uh, they're, because I, there there are other species of non asexual lepidodactylus uh, uh, lepidodactylus yeah. that are found in that area so Le- it's, lepid- it's yeah. been relatively well okay uh, lugubris in particular i think is rivaling uh hemidactylus species in how broadly distributed i, I mean it gotten. wouldn't surprise me like you you, yeah. you just need one and yeah <laughs> it's the same thing as endotyphlops right yeah yeah just just the last episode we were talking about endotyphlops and its incredible ability to dominate and spread um led by the fact that it only needs one individual and you can uh, exponentially grow your population. So. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I I've, had that... them, I've had them in the past. I really like them because they're one of the few geckos you can sort of keep communally. 
and uh, and they do right. this really neat thing to watch where they like communicate by waving their tails at each other, and it's they're mm-hmm. they're great. So oh, a lot of geckos do that. That's a an important thing that has not, as far as I'm aware, been studied in in enough detail. This um this this tail communication. I mean they they yeah. Well, a lot have, of species. Have you ever kept do that? Have you ever kept morning geckos? Because what's interesting because they'll go through like a lot of the motions of courtship, but it doesn't yeah. result in anything. They're all you know. Well, it, yeah, it's, I mean it's, they I, they even have false mating, right? Yeah, yeah, it's nuts. It's crazy. It's amazing how little of the social behavior of lizards has been described. Yeah. I, I ran out through that problem when we were trying when we were re- reviewing the Tiet's family. They have all these complex communications with their hands, their tails, but yeah. you know, waving and stuff. Nothing in the literature. Yeah. Nothing zero and uh, and or a very anecdotal. Uh, well, all I know, ever data. see is, is reference to their their vocalization, right? They make yeah, but but if, but even with animals as well studied as anolis, yeah, anolis do a lot of stuff with their tails. Very little in the literature. Huh. Very little. I just published. A, a, I just um, did a video last week on uh, on some uh, uh, Puerto Rican crested anolis waving their tails. Huh. Very little. I, I, you don't, you know, because you hear so much about the push-ups yeah. and the doulab thing. But there's definitely you... stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the other thing for me was uh, in my neck of the woods, the spotted salamanders are all coming out. So Friday night, I took my family out to go watch the spotted salamanders come out of the ground. We actually saw some coming out of holes in the ground to cool. make their way to the vernal pools and, uh, and mate. I saw Ambistoma maculatum, the spotted, but I also saw uh, Jefferson salamander and uh, Eastern newts. Um, a friend of mine who came, who went out a little later in the evening saw dusky salamander, uh, world sal- four toes, like just huge number of species all out at once. It was a nice rainy night in the fifties. It was awesome. Lots of spring pe- like. The spring peepers and the wood frogs were so loud, you couldn't hear the person next to you talking. Mm. It was deafening. It was just amazing. So, Cool. That's nice. Yeah. Great. Yeah, sounds nice. Okay. Uh, let's move on to everyone's favorite section. Breaking news! Oh, it sounds so awful with my throat like this. <laughs> All right. I'm going to level with you. We're going to talk about some papers that none of us have read. <laughs> um, sorry about that in advance. As I said, uh, it's, a, it's a real stressful time at the moment. Um, the first thing I want to do is talk about the, there are two upcoming herpetological conferences that people should apply to, uh, go to, to um, give talks at and just to come along. Um, one of them is, of course, the World Congress of Herpetology, uh, which is in Dunedin in, uh, in New Zealand. It's in January. I can't remember the exact dates. There will be a link on the show notes. And I, together with uh, six or seven colleagues, have uh, am organizing a 
symposium on microhylid frogs. So if you like narrow-mouthed frogs, very cute frogs, and also if you like listening to me speak words at your face, um, then come along to that. We will be talking about all of the coolest stuff that has happened in microhylids or that is happening in microhylid research um, over the last 50 years or whatever, especially things that are going on right now. We have a lot of really cool people who are applying to give um, talks. I don't know if my own talk is going to be accepted yet. Um, actually, after we finish recording here, I'm going to try and write the abstract for that uh, <laughs> because I meant to do it today and I just didn't get to it because all of the other things and the stress. Um, anyway, so uh, World Congress of Herpetology is going to be awesome. Apparently, the one that was in uh, China two years ago, three years ago, was amazing. And this one is going to be doubly good, especially because New Zealand and how cool is that? Naltinus. Um, that's what I would be looking if I were there. I would be all over the Naltinus. I would be looking for those Naltinus oh, everywhere. Oh yeah, my god, I mean, yeah. yeah. Those are my no, favorite I mean, geckos. We're, we're going we're gonna to go right for Hoplodactylus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he won't uh, look like I, a stuffed sausage. I want sausage. to believe, yeah. Yeah, yeah he won't look <laughs> exactly. like a stuffed We should say uh, what Hoplodactylus are. We'll get really to quickly. that. Yeah. Is, oh, we'll get, is, because yeah. it's only one. Yeah, we'll get to that, it's true. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, I just wanted to say, before we go on, Ethan is wearing a shirt <laughs> that has, it says across the top, holier than thou. And it looks like a metal shirt. And I thought at first, wow, Ethan is really into metal. And then I noticed that underneath the holier than thou, it's a picture of Peepa Peepa with its back full of babies. <laughs> it's yes. just like... Uh, Ethan, I, where can our listeners buy this shirt? I don't know if, if uh, she's still selling it, but I, uh, I this actually came out of a conversation that I had on Twitter with a friend, Ainsley, uh, who does, her, her handle is American Beatles. So she's an entomologist, uh -huh. she's out in, she's in Australia, but she's an amazing artist, and she drew this based on a joke that I had made about Peepa Peepa <laughs> being holier than thou. And, uh, it is it is a great shirt, and we should definitely be able to like link to a, a place yeah, that people can buy can, that. Uh, yeah, if, if it's we can still, still if we can find it. Yeah, because um, we because it was a couple of years ago. So yeah, 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 yeah. All right, and the other the other thing, the other conference that's coming up is the European Herpetological Society uh, conference, which is in Milan in. September, I want to say. Uh, again, link will be on our show notes. You should know that the deadline for abstract submission is, I think, the 1st of May. So it's getting tight. Apply if you want to go. I will very probably be there. Well, I will be there if my abstract is accepted. If not, then probably not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fun. Um, I went to the last one, or maybe the one before the last one. I went to whatever one was in Salzburg. It was great. There were so many cool people there. Um, definitely go along to that. Okay. So now we're going to move on to papers. So first up uh, is just a quick note that in the episode, I guess it was two episodes again, so that would have been episode eight, where we had... James on, we were talking about um, the Enolis newsletter 
And toward the end of the Anonymous newsletter, there is this article about crazy, awesome, amazing CRISPR being done in Anolis. Yes. And now, already, uh, there is a preprint that is available. Uh, it's on the bioarchive, and um, it's by Ashley Racis et al. Racis et al. I don't know how to say that. Um, and it's called... I can't remember what it's called either. Sorry. <laughs> Just uh, dropping all the polls. Um, CRISPR CAS9... Cas9, Ca yeah. Ca CRISPR Cas9 gene editing in lizards through microinjection of unfertilized oocytes. It is awesome, and there is a supplementary video that basically walks you through the steps of how to do it. So I've been in touch with uh, the authors, um, with well, specifically with Douglas uh, Douglas Menke, who's the last author on the paper on the preprint at least, and. Um, they say that they're organizing a workshop thing where people will be able to go uh, to learn the technique, to apply it. Um, I, he said that there's going to be a focus on getting students into it, but I'm really hoping that I will also be able to participate. If not, I might actually arrange some, some separate way to get involved um, and try and, and get that method working on this side of the Atlantic because Otherwise, that information is gonna, that 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 technique is not going to make it over for a while, and it would be amazing not only to be able to do this in anoles, but also in other uh, lizards and other um, other animals. Um, so that's really cool. That is a huge, huge step. I mean, some people have been lauding this as uh, the biggest step in herpetology or the biggest news in herpetology um, in the last 20 years, and you know. I I, uh, I don't disagree with them. I think this is a huge step. Um, so congratulations to those authors. Congratulations to Ashley and, and the rest of the team. That is such a cool thing. And I am looking forward to learning how to use the method. I mean, the video is super explanatory. It looks really fiddly. So, um, now, yeah. This is, the, this is the paper that I saw floating <coughs> around where they created a albino version correct of, of an animal. yeah so yeah. so they knocked out the tyrosinase gene and um and made the the, the the lizards albino and that's a great way for you to assess already even if the egg were not to hatch you could immediately see that this is an albino lizard so that the crispr worked or whatever it happens i think that all of their eggs hatch huh um but so yeah yeah, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, and I. That is a big step. I, it makes me wonder. You know, ten years down the road, are we going to see, you know, <laughs> CRISPR morphs available on the, <laughs> the pet trade? It's possible, side but I think it's rather unlikely because the CRISPR itself is very lab based, and this technique is yeah. uh, is rough. So. It's gonna be. I mean, r by rough, I mean it's very, uh, it's very fiddly. You're injecting things that are right. less than a millimeter. I guess where I was coming is once you create those, it. you know, animals, they should be true breeding. They're out yeah. there. They're true breeding. It's like what I mean, happened with they, the GFP they, axolotls. Those are now. I mean, those I'm are just lab here for a dis you know. I'm just here for a dystopian future where humans have the <laughs> and only DNA with dulips and <laughs> topads. And they're able to change colors, so that's what yeah. I want. 
I want yeah. exactly, exactly. Like Mark is right now creating Sorry. a dulap from me. I have very, I have very stretchy neck skin, so I can already do a dulap. Dude, stop doing that, or you're gonna regret it in a few years. Yeah, it's very. I, you, it's all right. I, I have really, really stretchy skin. Anyway, it works on, on um, lady but, lizards, not so much lady humans. I don't think the stretchy <laughs> neck skin. Yeah, no. Yeah. My lady is not thrilled when I'm like head bobbing. <laughs> 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 furling out my doulet at her. Anyway, uh, so that's really cool. Uh, we're going to move on. The genome of a rattlesnake has been published. I don't remember which rattlesnake it is. Uh, bear with. It's here. Cro the paper is called The Origins and Evolution of Chromosomes, Dosage Compensation and Mechanisms Underlying Venom Regulation in Snakes uh, and involves the genome of the prairie rattlesnake which is apparently in Latin called the green rattlesnake for reasons that I don't know. Crotalus Crotalus uh, viridis. Yeah. Uh, so that's cool. They have done some stuff and looked at some things. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great way to put the two on the paper. As I say... Yet another is, paper. Uh, They'll be <clears throat> totally red. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yet another paper. I mean, usually I've at least read the abstract on things, but honestly, I haven't even had time to read the abstracts here. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but it says that their, their microchromosomes are enriched for venom genes, which is quite cool. So, um, maybe that means that the venom genes are somehow forming linkages um, that, are, that are forcing them to maintain... Um, uh, units and therefore sticking together when the when the chromosomes fragment into microchromosomes. Um, so yeah, that's that's an interesting paper. I'm sure it will be a fascinating read for people who are very interested in the topic. Um, but we'll move on because the next paper is it's, really cool. And yes. I do actually have some stuff to say about I it. I like that paper too. I thought it was really really cool. Yeah. So the next paper is by um, Gabriel. Do you want to say the name? <laughs> Sandra, well, the first one. I think the it's not. I think name. it's a. It's a. I think it's a. It's a German name, no? Good. No. Sandra, good. Good. It's either French. I, okay, maybe it's French. It's French. So maybe it's Sandra. It's good. Good. Okay, we're we're gonna call it. Sorry, Sandra. Yeah. Um, she's on Twitter at Sandra underscore Gut G O U T T E. Um, it's published in Scientific Reports uh, just last week or two weeks ago, um, and it's called Intense Bone Fluorescence Reveals Hidden Patterns in Pumpkin Toadlets. <laughs> now, what's interesting is, in January of this year, a paper appeared in Salamandra, the German Journal of Herpetology, that was the first paper to actually publish UV fluorescence in pumpkin toadlets. So pumpkin toadlets are the genus Brachycephalus. The paper tiny. is not another, cited in this paper. Another tiny obviously, frog. Obviously, yeah, they're they're very very small frog. Good lord, they're among among the top fifty uh, smallest frogs in the world. Are also some members of the of the genus Brachycephalus. Um, they're wonderful little frogs. Yes. The, they're called pumpkin toadlets probably because they're bright orange. Yeah. Um, and they have a lot of things that sort of characterize miniaturized frogs. So they have huge eyes relative to their body size. 
They're famed for not being able to hear their own calls, although I really don't believe that. Um, and Wait, so they also yeah, that makes, are maybe <laughs> Wait, what? Go back a second. They can't hear yeah. their own calls. <laughs> What's the point? That made so, that claim that they literally can't hear their own calls because they're too small and they don't have external ears. But I, I seriously don't believe it. Yeah, yeah so that makes no sense. Yeah. Why are you yeah. calling if you cannot hear it? Exactly. I mean, it's so energetically costly that it must be really strongly under negative selection uh, uh, if, it, if it's yeah, no longer being be, perceived. Like bone it must still have a function. Or something. Like, you know, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, your ear, your ear still works even if you don't have an external auditory thing. It doesn't work very well, but you can still hear things. Right. Plus, we don't know what the frequency of, you know, what, what frequencies these things, ears under the skin are hearing. Yeah. But yeah. they also, like all other uh, tiny frogs, they had these weird fingers because they, a lot of um, yeah, tiny right. frogs have re lost reduced digits. digits, yeah. Reduced yeah. number of digits. Yeah. And that's, um, that's a really interesting thing by itself, but we can talk about that in a future episode. I think we, had, we talked about making a future episode about miniaturized frogs in general, and that's just something we can, we can get to. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they do, which a lot of miniaturized frogs do, is that instead of hopping to get around, uh, they walk sort of in slow motion, which is super cute. Um, <laughs> it is not something that frog bodies are especially adept at. Yeah. It's but, like it's um, like a throwback because that's probably how uh, <coughs> the first Batrachians looked like. I mean, I mean, they were to toads around here. I, I've noticed like American toads up here. Yeah, tend, toads also tend are to walk more than they hop. Yeah. You know, especially when they get big. Yeah, and I mean, if yeah, you look I, at the the really big tree frogs as well, like dendrops, uh, yeah, dendrosophus yeah. and stuff. Well, and like, you and you have um, buffonids do that. I mean, several buffonids walk. Like you have Oreofrenella, right. Oreofrenella from the Guyana uh, Shield, and those are toes. only that was walk. What we were just they saying. Only walk. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm not. They're toads. I'm not sure. Really I mean, I, told, I, sh I have a huge cane toad, and I don't think I've ever seen her actually hop. <laughs> I don't think she they can. Hop. She, I no, don't, they yeah, hop. Yeah, they'll, they'll hop they if hop. they need to. She's huge, though. I've um, never seen her actually. But, they, <laughs> but even even huge one hops. Yeah. So this this paper that I mentioned that was published in Salamandra, um, it's by um, Rauni Rebusas. Rebusas? Rebusas? It's got a, a CS on it. It's a Rebusas because it's, it's Portuguese. Rebusas. Yes. Um, published in Salamandra, it's called Is the Conspicuous Dorsal Coloration of Atlantic Forest Pumpkin Toadlets uh, Aposomatic? And in it, they have a beautiful photograph of a fluorescing pumpkin toadlet. And it was, so they beat out this, this other paper, um, but only by a few months, which is why it was not cited in the, in the new study. Um, so, this paper is cool. It, of course, cites... Uh, uh, my, my colleague David's paper about um, UV fluorescence in, um, in chameleons. And actually, they talk about our paper a little bit because, um, well, they, they criticized it <laughs> for, not, um, for not quantifying and comparing the fluorescence of the tubercles to the rest of the skeleton, which is... True, we didn't compare it to the rest of the skeleton because 
The rest of the skeleton is not visible. We compared it instead to bits of skin that were not fluorescing because that's the informative bit. Because we, we worked on the assumption that the bit of bone underneath the, the tubercle is identical to the rest of the bone, which maybe is not true. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so it seems a bit of a, a, a I'm not I'm not super familiar uh, with a lot of vertebrate animals that, that, that wander around with, the, with their skeletons. <laughs> totally, totally on the outside, out. yeah. No, it's, uh, <laughs> what what is amazing about this is that we keep finding more and more stuff that is fluorescent. And that, that I get the feeling that probably, I'll, like, I don't want to say most, but I would like to say that this is widespread, very <laughs> widespread among reptiles and amphibians. And you know, us crappy mammals don't have the eyes to see it, but you know, this is probably much more common than we think. Exactly. And so, actually, I just received earlier this week another mention about, um, about a different frog that also fluoresces, and now I cannot find it, um, that was also just published. Uh, Let me see if I can find that one. I saw the pumpkin one, the pumpkin tail that, that you're talking about. Yeah, but I think it's because you retweeted it. <laughs> well, it got really nice uh, media coverage. As yeah, well. I it, mean the photographs yeah. and the videos especially are, are yeah, off the. It was very cool. really good. So we live in Pandora. We just we just don't know. We just didn't know it. We, we, don't, we just no, don't have no, the no. eyes to see it. We just don't have the eyes to see it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So a lot of people are making the wrong the wrong explanation as always that um, that this is because we can't see in UV. It has nothing to do with our ability to see in UV, and is rather to do with how well we can see blue light. Um, but on the whole, <coughs> these two papers are really cool. So in the new paper, um, or, or in the the one that we're focusing on here, this paper by Sandor Gut et al. Um, they have done a lot of really complicated things to quantify the um, the fluorescence in relation to other bits of skin. It's a really beautiful paper, really interesting. And if you're interested in this sort of private communication hypothesis and the function of this sort of thing, definitely go check out that paper. Um, it's got some really interesting insights and it will be very cool to see where this is found even broader going forward. Um, I just remembered that the other paper that I was talking about, <clears throat> I think it was in a Rarkestes, so one of these um, uh, 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 um, Rachophorid frogs. And uh, I can't remember exactly anymore. Uh, it'll be in the show notes for sure. In this case, it's actually skin that's fluorescing along the, on, along the flank of the, of the frog, which is really cool. So that's another kind that makes three different kinds of UV fluorescence in frogs alone. Can I can I um, make a quick mention? I don't know if you guys know that there is this Trinidad Trinitarian lizard that is was famous for a while because it was supposed to be called the light bulb lizard because it it it's, it was when it was first described it was said to um, had like um, uh, bioluminescence. On mm -hmm. on its uh, it has ocelli on its flanks, which ocelli are right. are light spots with a uh, dark uh, margins. But then you know that 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 those uh, lizards uh, that genus of lizards is 
common in northern South America, and they all have the same, and none of those have that. And it's it was believed that you know this was a wrong. Uh, it, it was a it was a mistake that the f author that first yeah was it found like, a, the like a reflective type of surface yeah. yes so now I want to see those mm. spots those ocelli on the sides of those on the flanks of those given ophthalmids you know somebody had to look at them again and under this yeah. UV spectrum thing because. It wouldn't surprise me if those are actually, you know, fluorescent you under know, UVs. I, not to uh, not to go totally off topic here, but I saw someone posted a picture of a, gymno, a gymnothalid uh, lizard that they were keeping, and it was an, a semi-aquatic animal, and it looked for all the world so much like a tribulonotus skink, like it looked like the mm. crocodile. It even had the red eye marks. Oh, Potamitis is yeah. the one that you yeah, saw. Yeah, 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 yes, because it was like Potamus, like hippo, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. Potamitis. Uh, river dwelling, yeah. So yeah. I was really, like, floored by that. They're, like, what is it about those red markings that... <laughs> oh, a lot of them, a lot of the semi-aquatic, uh, they, males have it, especially, and it's uh, seasonal. It's a breeding coloration. A lot of it's times they get like coloration. really bright eyes. Huh. Yeah, a lot of times they get like really bright eyes and really bright franks. Because like, a lot of them have it. That made me think of the fluorescing, like you know, it almost it's just mm. weird. We have to look at all these animals' markings again. Yeah. You know, <laughs> these whole things have to be looked at again under yeah. this fluorescent yeah. thing. Because yeah. I, I assure you, this is a lot more common than we <coughs> we first thought. For sure. All right, let's move on to the okay. next paper, more frogs. Yeah, our next, our next paper is by Balash Vajit et al., published in um, the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And uh, it's called Parental Care and the Evolution of Terrestriality in Frogs. So this is super fascinating for me, and uh, I look forward to having an opportunity to read it in detail. Um, but essentially what they did is they went through um, a neuron so frog families, and they looked at parental care, they looked at sexual size dimorphism and various other life history traits, and they um, tested for associations between these things. And what they found is that um, more terrestrial species tend to have more parental care, hmm. which you know, actually makes quite a lot of sense. So if your, your tadpoles cannot forage for themselves on land because they're <coughs> tadpoles. Right. Right. So even if you put them in a phytotelm, they're not likely to have enough sustenance. Yeah. Uh, well, you do see a lot of weird solutions to that problem. You see oh, exactly. dart, frogs that, yeah. dart frogs that feed their, their young other eggs, uh, yeah. midwife toads. Uh, we could spend exactly. a whole episode discussing the different the weird types ways of... that yeah yeah <laughs> <coughs> yeah so that's yeah so I mean it makes total sense um, it's sort of a um, not a surprise but it's nice that it's that it's been demonstrated hmm. what surprised me more was that sexual size dimorphism is, is specifically when males are are relatively larger compared to females uh, is also associated with increased parent paternal care. So 
the larger the male, the more he's investing. Mm-hmm. Basically. Which is, you know, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but females seem to be larger <laughs> among frogs, right? Yeah. So generally, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so this is interesting since the, you know. Right. So, so the less and the less difference between the sizes, the more paternal care is what you're saying. Is that what I heard? Or the, the actually uh, the male is larger in those sex in those. The larger the male. Yeah. Yeah, it's just the larger the male. They don't say necessarily the male has to be larger than the, the female. female. Okay. It's just larger relative to the female size. Huh. Um, so you, we'd have to look into the paper to actually find out what they mean by that. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's an interesting thing, it, and it's specifically not just like, and it's specifically to do with paternal care. What's interesting is back in the 70s, there was a paper published that I will not be able to pull out of my notes because I can't. Oh, it's in my, it's in my bachelor's thesis. Uh, master's thesis. Uh, anyway, there's a there was a paper published that looked at the reason for male bias sexual size dimorphism in frogs, and the suggestion was that most of that is driven by um, male male competition. Mm-hmm. But this provides a really elegant alternative explanation. You don't necessarily need super terrestrial territorialism or male male conflict. It could just be that the males are now becoming more invested in, in care and therefore um, are, are increasing their body sizes. So, I mean, it's a pretty reasonable yeah. conclusion. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so it, it, It's interesting, too, because like so many male anorins are built, they're built differently. They're... they're not only are they smaller, but they tend to have like the beefier arms to hang out, or they'll develop those nuptial pads and stuff like that. Like there's there's yeah. a lot going on there. Yeah, I mean frog frog mating in general is fascinating. The number of different positions that they have found across yes. the evolutionary yeah. tree yeah. Of, of frogs. I mean the the mantelids are for me one of the weirdest. They like they they don't have amplexus. Instead, the male sits on the head of the female <laughs> and lets his sperm dribble down her back, <laughs> which is just like... That is um. another, uh, another idea for another episode. We could spend a whole episode <clears throat> speaking about the different uh, uh, reproductive strategies of frogs. Because yeah. yeah. we, we can yeah. talk for hours about that. Yeah, yeah. Brachyceps, uh, uh, the, 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 the breviceps, the, the ones that stick I was just going to say, yeah. there's a group females. where they get glued <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think actually Notaden do that too. So Australian frogs. Huh. So, yeah, really cool. So this is a fascinating paper. Definitely check that one out. Um, next paper, just very briefly, a paper by Jeffrey L. Weinel et al. Uh, published in I think it's in MPE. Um, yeah, MPE. Correct. A species level phylogeny of Trachylepis provides insight into their reproductive mode evolution. So trachylepus are uh, skinks, many of them formerly in the genus Mabuya. Which is now restricted to the new world. Correct, because Mabuya was a waste bin taxon because people were just like, yeah, sure, it looks like a skink. Uh, (laughs) Throw it in there with the rest of them. Uh, So the um, trachylepis in general is a fascinating thing to, to try and reconstruct. So 
this is going to give some really interesting insight into where the animals have come from, what their relationships are, and uh, uh, for me in particular, the origins of the Malagasy clade of, of Trachylepus, which is monophyletic as far as we know. Um, but it'll be really interesting to see what the closest relatives are on the mainland of Africa and um, and maybe even up into up into India. I don't know if they're they're found so broadly. Guess where there yeah. are um, Trachylepus introduced also. <laughs> yeah, I mean Trachylepus there. We have Trachylepus really here also. Adaptable. Really adaptable lizards. And I mean probably the most abundant lizards in Madagascar. I think that's pretty safe to say. <clears throat> okay, next paper, uh, Brendan J. Pinto et al. published in Developmental Dynamics, the transcriptome of the veiled chameleon, Chameleo calypteratus, a resource for studying the evolution and development of vertebrates. So this paper came, for me, came out of the blue a little bit. So I had spoken with some of the authors, and I guess I knew that it was coming, but I'd forgotten. Um, but this is cool. So they, they've gone through, they've made a transcriptome of uh, chameleons, which is now quite easy to do. You can get could, a transcriptome could you, sequence. Uh, could you of, talk us through uh, what a transcriptome is? Just oh, We yeah. covered it, but we didn't yeah, understand. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so a transcriptome is basically, uh, instead of sequencing the nucleus, the DNA, you're instead sequencing everything that has been transcribed from the nucleus. So everything that's floating around in the cell that's active. Okay. So you don't get all of the introns. You don't necessarily get the enhancer bits. Um, you don't get the bits of junk repetitive DNA that are in between. But instead you get basically the expressed genes. Now, <coughs> there's a lot you can do with the expressed genes. You can use that to look at what specifically was being expressed in each specific cell individually if you have that level of resolution. But what we do a lot is we take living tissue or very freshly dead tissue and we take it from multiple different organs and we whiz it all together and we take a transcriptome from that which gives us as many genes as possible from the from the genome that are being expressed. And um, so you're sequencing the RNA instead of the DNA. And you get out, you reverse transcribe in order to get out the uh, DNA sequences, which then cannot be assembled into a genome, but you can then look at these specific bits of the expressed genome, um, which is super useful. So now to get a genome done, uh, a, a transcriptome done, instead of the, the thousands of euros that it still costs to sequence a single genome, you're talking about a few hundred euros to sequence a transcriptome okay. for every specimen. So it tells you a lot, but so it doesn't give you the entire picture that a genome... Exactly, exactly. And um, you're still left with the problem that, for example, orthologs or, or, or homologs, so multiple different copies, multiple copy genes, are not necessarily easy to distinguish. Um, and therefore, you, you don't know if you have one or six or however many copies of the gene that you have expressed in the genome. Um, so the, in this case, what they've done is they've sequenced a transcriptome from a chameleon 
and then they've annotated the transcript. So they've annotated the genes that the the, the messenger RNAs that were being um, that were active in the tissue at the time, <clears throat> and they managed to assemble or they managed to annotate 67% of the annotated, uh, of, of the transcripts, I think. So they got about 82,952 transcripts, they say. <clears throat> and, um, and from that, they were then able to annotate, I think, 67%, if I'm understanding the text correctly, um, which is really useful because now we, can, we have the sequence data for those bits of the genome which means that we can design primers now to go and get those bits out of the genome um, and study specifically their evolution over the chameleons or whatever. Lots of stuff that we can the, do with that. The grumpiest chameleon, yes. Exactly. <clears throat> so this is, I mean, this is interesting for me. We have sequenced actually um, quite a number of chameleon transcriptomes. Uh, just um, Madagascar chameleons or? No, all of them. Oh. I mean, a lot. Uh, not all of the chameleons, but representative yeah. sampling. Because they're, they're I can't uh, really talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, uh, Veilds are not. They're um, they're like a Middle Eastern chameleon, aren't they? They're correct. Yeah. They're from Yemen. Yeah, yeah. And from here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and Florida. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like everything else. Like everything else. Well, that's another one. You can get and, Florida locale. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a huge Well, that's, that's the thing about veiled chameleons is that you can, or uh, yeah, veiled chameleons or Yemen chameleons is that you can breed them very effectively because females can lay, I think, up to almost a hundred eggs. Yeah. If huge clutches. Yeah. Well, to the point um, where they and they don't live for very long. Yeah, but they, yeah. they. That's the other thing is if you. I mean, I've kept veiled chameleons before. If you if you don't breed them, they they die. They get they yeah. get egg bound and die. <laughs> So they almost yeah. have to be bred. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're great animals, and there are a lot of people who are keeping them. Um, and in the lab, they're quite... They're well, of the chameleons, they're the, which in general are very finicky. At this yeah, point, they have... The easiest this, chameleons, yeah. Yeah, at this they point, they, they, they are as common in the pet stores as bearded dragons. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. You see yeah. them everywhere. You don't need, you don't need like, the... the drip systems and stuff that you need for a lot of the other like the jacksons and stuff so yeah yeah i mean um a lot of these animals are not being taken care of very well True. in the thing yeah. but if you want to know more about how to keep chameleons go listen to the chameleon breeder podcast yeah. not this one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and the, cool, um, the latest the last paper is really cool yeah yeah, so this is by uh, Jenna M. Crow-Riddle et al., published in Austral Ecology, and it's called First Records of Sea Snakes Diving to the Mesopelagic Zone, which is wicked. So they have these the sea snake, a photograph of the sea snake, uh, taken at 250 or so mm -hmm. meters below the surface. What's it doing down there? Um, What's it doing down there? Swimming and foraging, <laughs> it says. That's, that's, uh, I wouldn't have... This is, you know, this area of the sea is called the Twilight Zone. <laughs> For all the, those that have seen documentaries about um, 
deep <laughs> sea uh, documentaries about uh, Blue Planet and stuff. They talk about the Twilight Zone a lot. That area went, uh, you know, between yeah. the the midnight the zone. super. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is really cool. We, we had no idea that hydrophine sea snakes uh, were capable of swimming to such depths um, and foraging there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it tells us a lot, really, about what these snakes are doing, what they're getting up to and, and uh, messing around with and stuff. So, no, I thought, I thought that was a really, um, really interesting discovery yeah realization we've been getting a lot of underwater uh squamates pictures lately oh yeah yeah oh yeah true you want to talk about that other picture well we yeah, saw we, we did we mentioned last time the the monitor right the monitor and then yeah. we got a, a video uh recently i think a couple of weeks ago of a, a uh, it's not a green iguana. Uh, well, actually, that one might be a green iguana for real, because that one might be iguana iguana for real. It was an iguana, um, though. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was an iguana, probably iguana iguana from Curacao, uh, swimming, diving quite deep. Yeah. I guess, a, what, like a few meters, probably yeah, yeah. five, seven, eight meters. Putting, um, in the, uh, putting in the work to become yeah. like a Galapagos. Uh, yes. Yeah. And we, we talked about this before, and I even tweeted that we, uh, you know, I've talked about this in the, in the, in the podcast before of how readily igua green iguanas uh, go into seawater. Well, I, I can, which is, they have that same salt uh, excretion technique that the marine iguanas are famous for, where they snort salt out. I've seen iguanas do that. Yeah. But I, I, I've never seen iguanas do that. Uh, I, maybe they do. I don't. I've seen uh, in captivity. I've seen them do it. They would. They really? would sneeze salt all over the glass. Uh, oh, okay. So well, <laughs> it's a thing they do. Yeah, that tells you. Huh. That's everything. interesting. I've never seen it, but I, I doesn't. I, I've seen them going on yeah. a daily basis to the bay, and I've seen them iguanas in salt water all the time. So, um, it's, yeah. It to me it was always. Um, surprising that that was not it's one of those things that is not mentioned in the literature that much but it yeah. occurs so often yeah. it's it's just mm. one of those things that like we say we know very little about the behavior of so many reptiles and amphibians the, yes for sure even yeah. even super common stuff like iguanas well, and we and know very are, little are pretty opportunistic too so it really doesn't surprise me at all that they would you know well but but what surprised me of this is that it's not super easy for um, reptiles to go into the water, into seawater, just like that. You know, it's not like, like it's going to seawater uh, is not something that most lizards will love really to do. Really you know what I mean? Want to yeah. Do yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So right. it's, so you have monitors and you have iguanas doing that. And it's, yeah. uh, it's interesting. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it's definitely interesting to know that a, that a sea snake can forage to this depth. It's, you know, it takes a lot of adaptations to be able to dive to those, you know, to that, to that depth. The pressure. 250 meters. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for sure. Okay. Uh, and that wraps it up for the b b b breaking newts. Okay. We're going to move on to the hashtag herper section. And this time we're doing things a little bit differently. What we're going to do is we are going to shout out 10 super awesome herpers or Twitter accounts associated with herpers 
you'll see why I'm making that generalization in a second, um, that you really should follow if you're on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, what are you doing? <laughs> Get on Twitter. It's 2019. Come on. Yeah. There are so many amazing um, herpetologists, herpers, just people super keen to enjoy, uh, to, to engage about herpetology on a day-to-day -day basis. It's where you can see how much enthusiasm is between these people's day-to-day uh, -day lives, their, their work and everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to shout out these 10 accounts. And, of course, number one on the list, the first one that we have to shout out, is uh, Kirsten Hecht, Hecht. I don't know if she pronounces it Hecht or Hecht. Drink. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hecht is the German word for pike, the, the fish. Ah, okay. So uh, it would make sense well, we, if it were... Anyway, doesn't matter. We have mentioned Kirsten before uh, because she yeah. started up the hashtag Herper. Herpers, yeah. Exactly. So you can follow her at Hellbender Hecht. Hecht is spelled H-E-C-H-T. Um, and yeah, she does. She does great things. She promotes a lot of really cool causes, and uh, definitely you want to follow her. And works with Hellbenders, which is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Hellbenders. Yeah. Hellbenders didn't make it on the list. Boo! Yeah. They didn't sure. get the federal protection that they should have gotten. Yeah, well. we'll we could talk about that another time. Yeah. yeah, we can talk about that another time. Next up is Priya Nanjapa. And she is... Who uh, does... Yeah, totally Priya. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, yeah. Totally, to as, yeah, in, totally. as in Toad, the, the anurin. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like Toad ally, an ally of Toads. <laughs> Priya. True. Toad ally. Priya. I'm, I'm not going to be able to see it any other way from now on. It's just, ah, you, the toad ally. Uh -huh. she, I don't think she'd be mad at that. Uh, yeah. And she uh, just was awarded the. I'm going to get it wrong. I had it up and now I don't have it anymore. But she, she, won, she got an award from. Park. Park. She got the 2019 Park Visionary Leader Award. For doing all kinds of awesome stuff. Science outreach. Uh, Science outreach. Stuff. Yeah. Which is very much needed right now. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Priya's great. Follow Priya. Then we have Aaron McGee, um, who is Afro underscore Herper on Twitter. She does great things. You might have heard of her. From the famous, uh, uh, what's the name? Goliath, right? Goliath. Goliath, the bullfrog so. tadpole. The, yeah. the ostensibly sort of neotenic bullfrog tadpole, which is incredible. Incredible, yeah. He's the size of a so, of a Coke can or something. Like, he's huge. Yeah. He's enormous. The largest tadpole that ever there were. <laughs> um Really impressive, and yeah, she she popularized um, him and uh, gives somewhat regular updates on the situation with its development. And and she um, plays the uh, find that lizard game. Every, yes, uh, was I think it's which is, yeah, which is awesome. It's a weekly game. She posts yes. this insane yeah. picture where you have to find the lizard in the picture, 
Yes. And you'll give yourself an aneurysm trying to find it. Uh, it's great. Hi- I haven't had one where I couldn't find the lizard yet. Well, but where was that? A, kind was of that a humble, for was a, that a humble brag that I just heard? No, there? because I, I, that was a humble. It's, brag. it's the same for me. It's the same for me. But we're, it's kind of unfair for us to play the game because we know. <laughs> you know. And I like I literally specialize in finding Europlatus, which are arguably the hardest lizards yes. to find. Uh, next up is Karen Lips, who I think is actually less, much less active on Twitter than she once was. Yeah, I. But yeah. Karen is a professor at I don't remember where anymore. At the University of Maryland. Yeah, yeah, uh, and is was one of the scientists who was at the front line when the Kittred wave um, went through Central America. Uh, so a lot of her research has been very important and and. Um, and insightful in terms of what's been going on in that situation. And uh, she's a delightful and, and, uh, and very kind human being, so you should follow her. Um, <coughs> her handle is kren, ren spelled like the bird, 88, on the tweeters. And she has an amazing avatar of a gastroteca marsupial, tree, uh, marsupial frog, so. Mm, yeah, true. Okay. Next is a friend of mine, Jody Rowley. She is, you probably know Jody. Do we need to promote Jody? I mean, Jody is great. Uh, she's based at the Australian Museum in Sydney, still, I think. She has, that, um, she has she's posted that, that hilarious- uh, The amplexus. Pictures uh, of the way that frogs, yeah, yeah. amplex, that we kind of were hinting at earlier there in, yeah. in our discussion. But yeah. that's where I think I first learned about the those frogs that glue themselves to each other. Yeah, it's true. That's her pinned tweet on, on Twitter. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's so good. Yeah. So uh, she also was probably the major force behind the Frog ID app uh, in New Zealand, which and, and New Zealand, I beg your pardon, in Australia, Australia. Oh. Uh, we just we just lost all <laughs> it's of our much less you know, fun. Yeah, New Zealand, all, all of our, our listeners down all under, of our Australia yeah. listeners. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, it's a much less fun game in New Zealand. To be fair, there are not that many species. Um, so they have ninety thousand records of frogs that have been made uh, in just three years or four years since the app came out, which is incredible. I mean, it, it looks great, and, um, and she's done really cool it's things. It's definitely a model to copy in other areas. I think yeah. it would be Absolutely. super helpful. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, I think there's a very high chance that Jody will be at the um, World Congress in uh, New Zealand. So come along to that, and you'll get, you'll get the experience, which is going to be really great. All right, next on the list is Katie Greenwald at Amphibs. Yes. She taught me about unisexual ambistomatid salamanders, and I still don't really understand. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
I met her and uh, and uh, uh, Kirsten in 2015 in uh, in Kansas, together with a bunch of other people. It was really cool. So if you go to these conferences, they're often these um, tweet ups where you meet up with other people from the tweeters and you can learn about them and find out that you're not following the coolest people. So um, yeah, really uh, good, another good reason to go and... Uh, yes. Let's say that campus. Katie Greenwald is a professor of, of uh, Michigan University, Eastern, Mi Eastern Michigan University. Yes. I, I met a lot of these people by drawing their avatars, so... <laughs> <laughs> So that is another yeah. way that you could you could meet these people. No, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Next is Anat Belazen, um, who is oh we didn't mention uh, Katie's handle. It's just at Amphibs. Yeah. Which makes things super easy. Um, our next next person is Anat Belazen. Um, A knot in my shoe. Who. Uh, yeah, Anat in my shoe, A N A T in my shoe, on the Twitters. She does um, uh, fungal mycology and uh, so so frog frog fungus mycology stuff, um, and is working on her PhD. And uh, and is an active and uh, in, in, um, engaging member of the of the Herpers, which is super great. Um, also, we have Sneha. Uh, sorry, I'm going to mispronounce your name. Okay. I really apologize. It's a difficult last name <laughs> <But> to pronounce. <laughs> Sneha Darwadkar, um, who is at Herpomania. On, Which might be my favorite Twitter. Twitter handle so far. Herpomania, That's... yeah. Yeah. Um, so Sneha is, I think, relatively recently started getting very active. On um, yeah. on Twitter and is and is just winning at the whole um, sitcom game. Really great. So um, we've had a lot of really fun conversations already. And um, yeah, you should you should follow her because she's she's relatively new to the community um, and is um, and is really engaging and really fun. This is kind of like the, this is kind of like a Herper starter pack. You know, you get <laughs> it is it is. <laughs> if you're new to the game, and I know that some people are new to the game here, um, you should definitely, definitely get on it. Um, and then we have Abby Lawson, who is at Abs Lawson on the tweeters, and uh, she studies alligators and does population ecology stuff. Yeah. yeah. And she's and has a, a and has a wonderful avatar. <laughs> By, by, your, certain, by yours truly, an individual, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. And, oh, and finally, the final, the final installment on the list is actually an account that is not specific to a certain person, um, but is the at herpetology, all spelled A L L, herpetology, which is. Uh, an amazing curated account um, where people from all different backgrounds are are curating yeah. um, <coughs> With the, the account and inclusivity and, and diversity and yeah it's really cool exactly so it's really great to see so much diversity in the herpetological community 
I mean, uh, we've been focusing a lot on, on promoting women within herpetology, and I think that that's, that's really important, but there are also so many other people who are underrepresented in this field, um, and it's great to, to see them getting a voice, and, um, and the, the stuff that they've been putting out is really insightful. So take some time, read through the tweets, and, and maybe consider how it can change your own perceptions about how the field works. And every week they have a different guest herpetologist yeah. that publish. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it's on, it's based on the model of, um, of things like, uh, and science, some, science tweets. Yeah. And, and I believe stuff, some yeah. of the people we mentioned have actually been on, on there. Oh, for yes. sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our main discussion, which for this evening is going to be about uh, some new Caledonian geckos or, or austral geckos. So, um, specifically, members of the family Diplodactylidae, uh, which actually comprises 25 separate genera, but for the most part, we're going to concentrate on former members of the genus Rachidactylus. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, take it away, Ethan. Ethan is our resident expert on. <laughs> on these things. So I got into Rachidactylus geckos probably 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, and it was early on, it was it was crested geckos. Uh, but I have since also had Lichianus geckos and a couple of the other, uh, other types. Um, they're all really interesting, really cool geckos to keep. And... Uh, they're now extremely common in the crested geckos are now extremely common in the pet trade. And <coughs> you're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Just dying. So some of the things that I think make them unique as far as uh, care goes is that they are primarily frugivorous. Uh, they all eat a, uh, a, a mixture you can make up of like a fruit paste and they are fairly temperate uh, and like like fairly cool temperatures, almost room temperature. So they're one of the lowest, most low maintenance reptiles that I have. And uh, a lot of the uh, geckos that are in that pet trade, they're all descended from a small group that was taken out in the 90s uh, of New Caledonia and, and brought to Europe and America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting, the, the history there is super interesting. So um, the, the genus now is uh, Corolophus ciliatus, but back in the day it was still Rachidactylus ciliatus. And th that transition was, um, was enacted by uh, Bauer et al., I think, in 2012, this paper called Revision of the Giant Geckos of New Caledonia, Reptilia diplodactylidae Rachidactylus. <coughs> and that would be which was uh, Aaron Bauer, sorry, which is uh, probably the... the yes, the indeed. Aaron Bauer is often called something like the grandfather of, of, of gecko, or the, the leader in the field of gecko. He's the top yeah. specialist in geckos. Yeah, He's basically he done... The, yeah. the well, expert, and yeah. I remember the paper yeah. when it came out that they had the phylogeny, like they actually showed which geckos, which New Caledonian geckos mm -hmm. were closely related to, to each other. Right. And so like right. Corellophus now is uh, the crested gecko and the Saracenorum gecko. 
which is a similar gecko, but it's about twice as big, and it has a white... It's stri- it actually looks a lot like gecko vitatus. It has the white stripe down the collar, almost, down the back. And, um, yeah. And, and lacks the crest yeah. that, um, that characterizes and, Simiacus. And has been hybridized in the hobby. Mm. With mm. with uh, ciliatus, yeah, they're beautiful lizards. They have these really big heads, very broad um, uh, tail disc. The, the, the distal end of the tail has a has a very broad disc, and um, I mean both both Corolophus um, yeah. ciliatus and um, Ceracinorum have that those those features, and they're also among geckos amongst the most um, tolerant to handling yes which is another thing that makes them very attractive pets so, so prior to prior to the mid 90s i would say leopard geckos were the were the supreme pet Absolutely. pet gecko right and they were yeah. they're st- i mean they're still a big deal they're still you know we have the genetics down for leopard geckos really well so you see a lot of a lot of selective breeding with them but uh, once, so prior to the early '90s, it was believed. Well, I think it was prior to the '80s. It was believed that crested geckos were extinct. Um, the the right. type specimen was was a preserved specimen. It was from the was it 1800s, uh, and it had no tail. Because it's really common for crested geckos to drop their tail and they don't grow it back, and. Uh, turns out that the specimen that they had was referencing a different island they were looking in the wrong place and i think there was a hurricane also that went through uh that, so they mm. when they had gone back uh they found them they found them on a different island i think that they found them on grand terre mm. well they're certainly found on Pen. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so they they discovered that uh, this gecko is alive and well, and they brought some back, and now they are extremely extremely popular in the hobby. And we've discovered that that the they do actually have tails. They don't have the weird nub that we thought that they had. <coughs> uh, yeah, because in the wild they had never been seen with a with a tail. And and that's. That's still true today. They still, ha- when people have gone to survey the wild populations, almost all the adult geckos have no tails. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting how that certain that happens in certain in certain groups. So we have that also in some Europlata species. You find like ninety percent of adult individuals don't have tails, huh. which is really really do weird. Do Europlatus grow the tails back? No, uh, the Fantasticus group do not. Huh. <coughs> so, like, yeah. um, Finiavana in particular um, is a species that uh, loses its tail very easily and very frequently, and it does not regenerate. Yeah. Hmm. Cresteds drop the tail very easily and do not grow it back. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I... Th- Gives them this very weird frog-like appearance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Strange. Yeah, they're very, very funny-looking. Um and with crested, they have the 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 ciliatus part of the name is from the eye. They have almost what look like eyelash crests over the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, they have since been bred. You know, over the last twenty years, they've been bred into a number of colors and patterns. So if you look at the wild types versus what's out there in the hobby now, like there's flames, there's tricolors, there's 
all these you know, Dalmatians. Dalmatians. There's you know, it's yeah. humans doing their thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Selecting the hell out of these things yeah, is crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, they're they're really interesting geckos. Um, actually, there's there was a study that was published not so long ago, uh, maybe a year or two ago, where they showed that in the wild the diet is actually has relatively low fruit content, um, which is fascinating. So most people do keep them on a diet that is almost exclusively um, vegetable in composition. So it's it's fruit, basically banana. Um, And uh, yeah, it turns out that in the wild, their diet does seem to have a relatively large component of... of So, you know, that's interesting as a keeper because I, (coughs) having raised a bunch of them, generally feed them uh, more insects than I think a lot of people do. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I noticed that when you're raising them, the babies grow really slowly on the the powdered diet. But if you feed the babies insects, they grow like twice as fast. Well, yeah. I mean, you imagine the, the, the value of the protein that needs to be in their diet. Yeah. If they yeah. are not getting that protein, they cannot grow as quickly. Yeah. And I'm not the only person who's... I mean, obviously, I didn't, like, discover that. That's, that's like, a well-known yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it is interesting that, like, they, they, they grow so much better. And so mm-hmm. uh, I wonder if, you know... I mean, it's interesting because it's a big selling point of them is that you people want to keep a lizard but don't want to deal with live food then a crested gecko is a good you know is yeah. sold as a good I mean choice. Um, my partner and I we have a we have a crested gecko as well and we we keep it on a on a vegetable diet exclusively yeah. also because it's just so much more practical than having to go out and buy crickets all the time and it's also quieter I I've <laughs> um, noticed too some so. of the food the people who make those foods I don't know which you're using but uh, there's like in the U.S., there's a couple of major brands of it, and they—it does seem like they have started to use like ground cricket flour in right. a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them are using sort of animal protein in, yeah. the, in the food as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> so I think it's just like the diet is more conducive. If it's live food, it's more conducive to the animals just eating more, and I think that also helps. Yeah. So like. They, they, they get a larger portion. But they're a great, I mean, they're a great, like, you know, you've got one too. They're they're a docile, uh, you know, very cool animal. And and the care is, like, ridiculously low maintenance for a lizard. Yeah. I mean, we keep ours in a vivarium, so it's a little bit more, more care just because yeah. we have to keep all the plants alive. Uh, and the plants are actually more difficult to keep alive than the gecko. Yeah. So. Th- does yours does yours <laughs> like to trundle over all the plants and destroy everything? Because mine does. No, it's not so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it it'll destroy anything if you put it on a perch. But yeah. uh, for the most part, the plants are fine. Yeah. We we mostly have a scourge of slugs that we have to deal ah, with. Ah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, Ciliatus <coughs> uh, is of course the most popular. Um, now in the in the pet trade, yes. but the lychees are by far the most expensive. Yes, well, and I think they'll always be expensive because you're they're so inefficient at breeding. We're talking right. I mean, it takes five years to get them <coughs> fully matured, mm-hmm. uh, and 
they're hard to pair up. They, 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 you know, either they take to each other or they don't. And if they don't take to each other, they beat the crap out of each other. They're right. um, only going to produce two eggs at a time, like all, like like most geckos, and they're just uh, I, they don't have a long season either. They're not the crested geckos are yeah. very prolific. Leeches are not. Yeah. And, uh, they are one of the largest geckos. Right? They are the largest extant yeah. gecko. They're the heaviest extant gecko. Yeah. In terms of length, I think that they come very close to Europlatus giganteus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're often touted as the, the largest extant gecko. I guess the, the length is probably up for debate. Which is why. What's the, long, yeah. what's the length? What's the, the, the record length? Do you know? Uh, for Lychee? For Lychianos, yeah. Uh, I don't remember what the actual measurement is, but I, I know, I think it's either Divas Jolly or the guy that, uh, Steve Samelli that runs Leap and Lychees uh, might have the largest uh, specimen. Yeah. So what about Europlatus? So apparently, including the tail, okay. which is, they have a very short tail, but including the tail, they get to... Uh, 14 inches, so 360 millimeters, So, which is so very... The other thing millimeters. that's interesting is that the island uh, locales are all very small comparatively to the uh, Lichianuses that you can find on the island proper. And uh, so it's very important in the hobby, like the, the, the people make a huge deal, I think we mentioned this once before, but like People make a huge deal about the locale that their Lichianus is from. So there's Nua Ana, there's Nua Ami, there's like all the island locales are very high color, and then the animals from the main island are not as colorful but very large, like bigger. So it, it, is it considered a polyphyletic taxon? Like it has more. I don't know that, that, been... I, that any of no. that is recognized at all. Yeah, I think that's all there a hobby. There are three thing. sub. There are three subspecies, quote unquote. Um, but whether or not those subspecies are, are valid, valid yeah. uh, is up for. Well, up for I don't years. know anything about the, the geology of New Caledonia, so I don't know if uh, it would make sense if those islands so, were connected or <coughs> not, right? How are all they little, connected? I have, there's these little offshore little island populations. Yeah, there. but but are I they? I mean, I have spoken with Aaron Bauer about this. Yeah, and um, his. Basically, what he said to me was that this is, um, yeah. it, it's not as clean cut as the hobby would have it believe. So there yeah. is gene flow well, between these and I, and I And they're not yeah. uncommon on the islands either, apparently. I, I, that doesn't surprise me, because if you actually, if you take any one of those geckos and you, <laughs> you post a picture of it and say, can you tell me what island this is from? No one can. Right. It's impossible. Well, yeah, but you would have to see, you know, there are a lot of more things to test to do that, like, you know, exclamation, all that. My question was, because if we know the geology of the area of those islands, if they're connected, if those islands were connected to the mainland in a recent past, then, of course, there was gene flow. Of course, it's more difficult to have gene flow with an island that has been disconnected for a long period of time. That's what my question is. Yeah, but the islands are, are separated by tiny distances. Right. Yeah, so and that's so. 
that's yeah. what I've heard as well is that, that there's not a lot to that. Um, so, but lychees are, they have picked up a lot in popularity over the last couple of years. They're um, expensive. Uh, you're looking at over a thousand US dollars easily for yeah for any of those so uh. yeah they're uh, <laughs> in Germany they're also very popular and uh, and very very expensive probably amongst the most expensive um, reptiles that are not like designer ball python right. um, morphs right, or whatever right. yeah I've, I've had them in the past they are one of my favorite geckos they're very cool um, but they are uh, uh, not for the uh, casual <laughs> keeper, uh, yeah. and they're not for somebody who wants to make a quick buck because you can invest a lot of money in them, and they just will just decide they're not compatible and they're not going to breed for you. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of interchange, at least here, of like males and females um, swapping basically oh, yeah. to try yeah. and get yeah. couples. Yeah. Um, uh, well, my uh, my colleague David um, breeds them or is trying to breed them. Yeah. I uh, I had them and I had um, uh, <laughs> they're mar- they were sold as the poor man's lychee. I forgot Gahira marginata. Uh yeah yeah yeah. And uh, and I had much more luck with those <laughs> breeding than than the uh, the lychees. So yeah, that doesn't surprise me that much. I mean Gahira are very. Um, Active breeders. Yes. Yeah, they were. They were. You know, they were nothing. Um, mm-hmm. So that's so that's Legionis. So then uh, another of the Rachidactylus that's really common now <coughs> that you're seeing a lot more of is the what the common name is the gargoyle gecko. Oh yeah, those are everywhere now. Yeah, and uh, even yeah. a few years ago they were not a commonly kept uh, animal. So they are, and I think that it owes a lot to the crested gecko because they're very similar in care to crested geckos. Same, same, yeah. same type of thing. And in external appearance, it, they look very similar in external appearance as well. Uh, but they're no longer in the same genus. Yeah, they're not mm-hmm. the same genus. Which is, um, yeah, and it, probably because of that, that overall similarity in appearance that they were um, originally placed into the into the same genus in the first place. So they don't have the crests the way the crested geckos they don't do, have the crests, but they yeah. have weird bony stuff going on at the back of their head. Yeah. The very uh, very fortified skulls. Yeah. Very strong yeah. jaws as I'm well. I mean that's true of all of the all of the former Rachidactylus members. They're really bulky headed. Yes. A very distinctive square snout too. Like they have like a quite yeah. of a square snout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know I've noticed with gargoyles uh, that they do actually grow the tail back. Which is interesting. Oh. Oh and they I never realized and they that. drop it less frequently too. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder what the benefits so, I mean, maybe well, I mean, the, the so in uh, in Coralophus, the tail is very robust and uh, specifically quite um, prehensile. Yes. 
And I wonder if the rachidactylus have the same degree of prehensileness to their tails because um, that, that robustness is very difficult to regenerate a second time. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I would say that gargoyles are not as prehensile-tailed as cresteds. They do use it like that, but not mm -hmm. as much. Like, you know, a crested will, will actually like monkey itself onto your finger and you right know. yeah um, so i i've noticed too with gargoyles is they seem to like a little more warmth like they they seem to be using more heat than than cresteds prefer so i don't mm. know um and then ch uh chewies chihua geckos are mm. like that as well where the the tail is kind of <coughs> like that which they got their own. They got a completely separate genus now. Right. Monaro gecko. And they're very unusual geckos in the first place. Well, they kind of remind me of the camouflage style of, of the Europlatus, where it's like it's a. They're trying to look like bark. Well, the, yeah. Lichianus does that to an extent. They, Lichy it, does yeah, too. Yeah, it's a, it's a, They're very cryptically colored geckos. Yes. A lot of species within diplodactylids tend to be like that. They're very cryptically mossy, mossy-looking yeah. geckos. But the but the Chihua yeah. takes that further. Like they look like lichen. They actually have like reds and greens and speckles in there, and you know, they look like like a mossy liana-covered piece of wood. Yeah, certainly highly modeled coloration. Yeah, and the um, <coughs> the there's a the Pine Island variant of that is the most like the most sought after on the hobby wise, uh, you know, in the hobby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're 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 great and, and really interesting lizards. Um, Chihua, I, or, or at least Nyaro Gecko. <laughs> it's really hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, Chihua Geckos, I uh, have only really seldom seen in Europe. Oh, really? Um, but I guess they are here. I just don't, I don't remember seeing them. I've certainly seen more of the um, Coralophus uh, saracenorum. Yeah which is anyway quite rare here as well, uh, but I've seen more of those than the Chihuahuas. I s well, I would say they're fairly common here now. Like, they're, uh, mm. I see them at every show. So they're definitely here. Uh, that's interesting that, they, that they're not as established in Europe. But you've got a lot of the Crescent Well, I mean, geckos, I, I could be, yeah. I mean, certainly the Crescent Geckos are, are bonkers here. Yeah. Everywhere. Um, it's just, it's, but I could also be mistaken I, in my I, perception. I think the crested gecko is is so interesting just because it it like I said it's like it it's like it's supplanted the leopard gecko as the go to hobbyist breeder pet gecko. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I think that has a lot. They're somehow to do with more the personable than. Um, well, I find them more personable than than. Um, Leopard geckos. <laughs> I've never been a big fan of Eublepharis yeah. in general. Yeah. And 
These geckos with eyelids, you know, they're really faking yeah. the whole, <laughs> the whole, the whole deal. Poser, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think, uh, yeah. but I think it has a lot to do with their care. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that 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 it's marketable to say it doesn't need live heat yeah. and it doesn't even really yeah. need, you know. Barely needs heat. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And we said earlier that yeah. they were the uh, Lichianus Recollectus Lichianus was the largest extant geckos because extant gecko because there was another species from this family which is yes. recently extinct, right? Yes, Hop, uh, Hoplodactylus delcorti. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Known only from so one badly preserved specimen. Fascinating. Yeah. Exactly. One, it's not so. So when you preserve a, a lizard, any person, any person who's been in a museum, knows that the only real, like the only good way to preserve a lizard, if you want the whole thing, is to put it in ethanol. But I believe the story goes that uh, the skin. So, so the, the only specimen is a stuffed skin, and it's, like, really stuffed. Like, really right. stuffed. It looks like a sausage. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. It looks like it could be on, yeah. like, that bad taxidermy <coughs> Twitter yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. It's horrendous. But I believe the story goes that they had somehow made a deal or that they had somehow scavenged the skin um, because there are no innards. There are no, there's no skeleton. There's no anything else associated with the specimen. So the question is, where did that all go? And I think that it's something along the lines of, like, they, they made a deal so the thing was eaten and then they got the skin from it or something. Yeah, Can't there's, remember there's something about the, the local uh, uh, indigenous people who knew of its existence and they got it from them. And uh, I, I've always heard that their implication is, is that there could be more out there, that... That if one were to go look, that, yeah. that it may still be Yeah, there. I mean, we've decided that we're going to rediscover it on um, <laughs> at, at the World Congress of Herpetology. Yeah. So that's reason number three why you should come to the World Congress well, of Herpetology. I, come along and rediscover Hoplodactylus del Curti. And to give people that perspective, it's really <laughs> much larger than any other gecko. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is huge. It it's is about the big. size... Let's say it's the it's now to bend length. It would be comparable to hmm. cat. It's about the size of a house well, cat. I have no, a... But I, just to give just to give an ex, an idea of another lizard, it would be like it's now to bend length. It would be to like a medium sized tegu. Yeah, it's something enormous. like that. It's enormous. it's big. It's really big. Um, yeah. And there's a there's a there's a a name for it in the local. New Zealand, and we should say too, this is not a New Caledonian gecko. This is from New Zealand, um, mm. but it has a na- it has a, a local name too. And it's I, yeah, the local name is Kawa- Kawakawiu. Yeah. yeah, which sounds very New Zealand, because everything in, you know, yeah, Kakapo, Kea, you have all those. <laughs> it's very Kiwi. Maori. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's a fascinating uh, story, and, and um, you know, it actually took some forensic work to figure out that it was probably from New Zealand in the first place. So I want we should make you know we should make shirts with that you know like a picture of the stuffed, you know I want to believe, yeah. 
you know? <laughs> I want to believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those will be available from us just as soon as we decide to make a red bubble shop yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing is that a lot of these uh, diplodactylids in New Zealand have uh, are in danger or have disappeared because it's the same case with Nultinus, which is also from New Zealand, which is, yes. by the way, my favorite uh, genus of diplodactylid geckos because they're awesome and somebody should breed them and put them in because so I would get one. I, I, I have a story about that, about how sometime, once a couple years ago, uh, you know, so they're very protected. We all know they're, they're very, you know. Very um, endangered, yeah. Somebody put a picture of a Nultinus on one of the reptile trading forums that I'm on and said they wanted, you know, like, I don't know, some ridiculous price. But it was an April Fool's joke, and it, like, went totally, you know, nuts. Like, everybody went crazy, like, you know, oh, my God, where'd you get that? Would have been, you know, like, not realizing <laughs> that it was, you know, April Fool's. But... Yeah. Yeah. They're, uh, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful lizards. They have live birth. Um, yeah. Uh, we, uh, many of them... We got to put a link to, to a, you know... The, oh, for yeah, sure. Pictures of all yeah. these diplodactylids. They're yeah. one of the most beautiful. They're one of the most beautiful lizards in existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah all this to yeah. give people an, an, like an idea. They are, I think, most of the species. Yeah, I think there's one that is not, but most of the species are bright green, and it's mm -hmm. that that green and only bright green that is like almost like fluorescent. And yeah, then they like have Felsuma grandis. Yeah, and then and then they have this all these patterns of diamonds and stuff and stripes and yeah. bands that are white. So they are very very interesting colored lizards. Yeah, and they're diurnal as well, right? So yes. yeah, um, really fascinating, crazy. And and I think there are some populations or species where every individual has been photographed, so they have. A record if any animal gets into the trade because their spots are are unique to the specimen. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, always, that's uh, one that uh, yeah, that's down where they came yeah. from. Yeah, and that's good. That's absolutely <coughs> good because I would hate to see that happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and this is a thing that I really hope does not make it into the pet trade. Right. Because beautiful though they are, um, much rather see them protected in their in their home forests and. Yes. You know. For sure. Although I do think that they are just beautiful. If if they're gorgeous. So yeah. uh, and I just had one more well, thing. I'd be content with some felsuma and. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was gonna say almost had, as beautiful. I had one more thing to mention about about Hoplodactylus, which was just that I have a Rachidactylus book from uh, I don't know. It's probably about fifteen years old that mentions Hoplodactylus in there as a animal that they believed was alive and that there were hobbyists out there that might actually have them and oh really I, yeah wow. and i always thought like if they are they're keeping it quiet <laughs> yeah 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 i mean who knows there are also all kinds of rumors about about the extinct felsuma species like felsuma gigas and stuff yeah. and you know yeah yeah but unfortunately, it really does look as though they're they're gone. And yeah. Who knows? Maybe they will turn up, and maybe I mean we'll have the world's highest concentration of of uh, herp experts there uh, at the beginning of next year. So we'll be able to see 
would be a, a great opportunity to find some I'm, cool stuff. I'm rooting for you because that's you know, I want I want to see <laughs> I want to see one that doesn't look uh, you know like uh. a terrible taxidermy. To, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. Even the models are bad. Like, I haven't seen. I haven't that's seen something, any good... Gabriel. If yeah. you get a, if you get some free time in your, like, just, just go ahead and try and reconstruct what they should look I, like. I was going to say, I've never seen literally a good not a single good. Yeah. No, I think a, a good, a good exist. model to go by would be Luciano. So I would take something that probably looked like a large. Yeah, but there Luciano. is currently no good illustration. Yeah. Does like yeah. so there is this a is really, what, really bad model. If somebody wants to commission one, <laughs> I would be more than happy to do so. So all herpetologists out there, please commission me to do a reconstruction of uh Hoplodactylus. I will be more than oh, grateful now, to do now that. you're t- now <laughs> I want to so we can do you know that I want to believe, you know shirt <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, there's such it's such a weird animal. Anyway, okay, I think that's gonna wrap it up for the episode. Um, so thanks a lot for listening. Sorry that we weren't at our usual uh, flair. I apologize for being ill and also stressed. Um, but hopefully things will be a little bit better next month. Although I don't know how it's gonna <laughs> go. It's gonna be a bit rough. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, so, as always, you can find us all over the internet. I mean, we, you're listening on the internet, I presume, or almost on the internet. You must have found us somehow, which means probably you know the internet relatively well. Well, if you want to find Ethan, you can go to... Um, I'm at Black Mud Puppy on Twitter, on, uh, on all the other things, and then you can see my newly revamped website for nudist.com, N-E-W-T-I-S-T. Dot com. Uh, that's me. <laughs> yeah. And you can find Gabriel. I'm at, at Serpent Illus. I'm uh, at the same handle on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. So you can find me there and on my website, GabrielUgeto.com. And I am at Mark Schertz, S-E-H-E-R-Z, on all the things. Um... Yeah, we'll, we'll just say all the things. Google me. You'll find me. It's great. Uh, and you can follow the podcast, squamatespod.com, or on Twitter at squamatespod, on Instagram at squamatespod, Facebook squamatespod. You can send us an email. Please send us an email. That would be really nice. Uh, at squamatespod at gmail.com. And, of course, you can go to iTunes or whatever app you use to... Uh, well, actually, preferably, go to the iTunes store. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. We super appreciate them. We do read all of them, all of them, from all around the world. And we have such amazing feedback, and we really love it. Um, But, yeah, the more we get, the more people listen, and then they have us in their ears and their brains. And that's great, and we're happy about it. So, anyway, that wraps it up. Uh, Thanks for coming along. And as we say on the show, Hakuna Squamata.